Hi, this is Dave Abel. I'm the Chief Academic Officer of ELA for Unbound Ed. I'm here to introduce David Lieben. David has taught elementary, middle, and high school students in public and private schools, as well as community college and teacher preparation courses, both in New York City and in Vermont. David still spends as much time as possible in schools with teachers and children. Together with his wife, Meredith, David founded two innovative model schools in New York City, New York Prep, a junior high school in East Harlem, and in 1991, the Family Academy, where he served as principal and lead curriculum designer. David, can you tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you do it? My name is David Lieben. I'm the Senior Content Specialist at Student Achievement Partners, a title which indicates nothing other than possibly my advanced age. Most of my work at Student Achievement Partners is reviewing materials uh, as to not just their alignment with the Common Core, but their ability to raise literacy, uh, and especially literacy with all children. So on that, in that sense, I work with publishers, I work with districts, I work with states, and review might not be a great word. I, I look at it and I suggest ways that it can be made better and try to point out ways that it's really weak or really off mark. And I think that's the bulk of my work at Student Achievement Partners. I also give talks and presentations with large groups of teachers and principals, and I write. I'm, I'm in the midst of writing a paper now. Uh, I hate what? writing, if anybody's interested. <laughs> what is the paper about? Uh, why you need structured phonics. And I should say I hate writing, but I learn an awful lot from writing. Uh, an awful lot. There's nothing that crystallizes your understanding, even about something you know really well, as having to write about it, especially for, for a more general audience. Why do, you, why do you do all this stuff? I've always felt that education was supposed to be the great equalizer. Um, apparently it's failed to do that at this point. The, the gaps and scores that we've had for, ever since we started looking at scores and measuring have remained basically the same for low-income children. It really means children from less educated families. We just don't provide the equal opportunity that is essential to the American rhetoric for those children who come from less educated families. And I've been involved with that ever since I became a teacher shortly after the Civil War. <laughs> Okay, so since the Common Core State Standards were introduced in 2010, if I made you right? That's correct. What changes have you seen in schools and districts? There's more of an emphasis on vocabulary, academic vocabulary, what used to be called, what we changed from Tier 2 to academic vocabulary in order to confuse as many people as possible. There's more of an emphasis on, on academic Tier 2 vocabulary, which is good. Uh, unfortunately, it's not done the, the maximally effective way. The maximally effective way to learn vocabulary is through reading, and reading a lot. And reading when you read a series of texts on a topic is actually the way to jet-propel vocabulary growth. So more time should be spent on reading, and more time should be spent on reading a group or series of texts on the same topic, since we know, based on work by Landauer and Dumay, I believe from 1986, uh, and recently actually duplicated, that maximum vocabulary growth comes from reading a series of texts on a topic. So if we're going to catch students up with vocabulary, that's what we should do. Unfortunately, there's more of the effort and vocabulary goes into determining the vocabulary of, context, uh, of words in context and doing vocabulary exercises. Those are useful, but they're far less effective in growing students' vocabulary than reading. Mm -hmm. 
and especially, as I said, reading a series of texts on a topic. That being said, there is more focus on vocabulary, academic vocabulary. Close reading didn't exist before, which is rather intriguing. You don't often have in something like education, where in 2009, nobody did close reading. Nobody ever heard of close reading. People thought it was when you put the book closer to your face. And by 2011 and 2012, many people, the majority of educators, had heard what close reading is. So it's there. And it's being done, and it was not done before 2010. It's very difficult to say how many people are doing it well. Uh, it's difficult to say even how many people are doing it. There's some schools that I see where no one's doing close reading. There are some schools where it's a regular part of the instruction. Uh, there are some places where it's done very well. And there are some places where it's not. I, I think it's difficult. It's difficult to, to learn how to do close reading. There's a, there's a learning curve. For roughly 25 years or so, reading instruction has been with text at more or less the level of what a student could read, which is much easier to do that than to take a text which is far more challenging than anything a student has ever read before and find the support so that that student can not only benefit from that text, but over a period of time become a better reader. That's difficult to do, and it it has a learning curve, and so it's difficult to say how many people are doing it well at, at this point. So, greater emphasis on vocabulary since the standards, the addition of close reading. There's more nonfiction text, there's more informational text. That's definitely true. Many places are following the guidelines that say 50% informational, 50% literary in the elementary school level. And again, it's not always the best way to do it. The best way to do it, as I said earlier, is to read a series of texts on a topic, what in some places are called a text set, but still more informational text is being done. So more informational text is being done. There's close reading, which didn't exist before and there's a greater emphasis on vocabulary. And of course, people are trying to craft questions and tasks that reflect these standards or map to these standards as opposed to their, their previous state standards. So I think that's, those are all the series of changes that I would say at this point. So what has surprised you regarding how teachers reacted to the Common Core both negatively and positively. Did anything surprise you? Did you anything you say, I didn't think they would do that, or you're surprised that they didn't find this a problem? Well, over a period of years, less so now, the Common Core and teacher accountability were all conflated. Sure. And a great deal of the negativism, understandably, arose around that. Putting together the standards which were more rigorous, text that was more rigorous, a test that was more demanding, and then saying, oh, by the way, we're going to hold you accountable for results, was really stupid. And much of the negativism that came was about that as opposed to the standards itself. That did not surprise me. I've never been a fan of this accountability by, based on the tests. I think most teachers like the standards. That I felt they would. I think most teachers of the corpus of work that the standards represent, what, what people had the most trouble with was standard 10, complex text. That was completely predictable. I can't think of any other great surprises or prophetic uh, wisdom that I had, which was verified by what, what took place. Okay, fair enough. So what do you think the central problems are with the general way we approach literacy and ELA instruction? Well, this will fit with what I said earlier. We know from the ACT study, ACT 2006 Between the Lines, that the single biggest predictor of the ability to succeed in college is the ability to read complex text independently and proficiently. There are many features to complex text. Longer sentences, longer paragraphs, more abstract words, more uncommon words, less cohesive texts, uh, a variety of text structures as opposed to just narrative. 
But amongst those features, the ones that cause students the greatest difficulty is vocabulary and knowledge demands. And we're not going to be able to get the students we need to help the most to be able to read complex text unless we grow their vocabulary and we grow their knowledge of the world. And there's abundant research for both of these. And we're having a hard time doing that because that hasn't been part of ELA worldview. And that's not because of teachers. That's not because of anything teachers have done wrong. But it's a huge shift. And it's taking time for that to happen. And even when it does happen, it takes time to grow students' vocabulary. And it takes time to grow students' knowledge of the world. By some estimates, students learn 3,000 words a year between third grade and roughly 10th grade. By some estimates, it's 2,300. In either case, that's a substantial amount of words that cannot possibly be learned by direct vocabulary instruction or learning words in context from what we read. It can only be learned by reading. And as I said, reading informational text and reading a series of texts is likely the only way that we can catch students up who are years behind. So the shift to reading more and the shift to reading more informational text, and especially the shift to reading a series of texts on a topic, is happening, but it's slow. It's interesting to see that when teachers do it, when I go into schools where they are using text sets, whether they're text sets made by student achievement partners or text set teachers made themselves, everybody is surprised at how well it goes, hmm. uh, especially when the text sets are gradated with seven or eight texts, let's say, and the first one or two are not that complex, the next two are a little bit more complex, and the final one or two are actually grade level or above. And lo and behold, the students can read the more grade level text. And for the first time, often many students are reading grade level and above grade level text because they read a series of texts on that topic, which meant that they had the knowledge to deal with the vocabulary and the more complex text. So it's great to see how it works when it is implemented. But that's slow to happen because in the past, emphasis has been more on comprehension strategies Mm -hmm. and more even on the standards. And emphasis on the standards without growing knowledge and growing vocabulary is not going to meet the demands of Standard 10. So um, in your capacity at Student Achievement Partners, you review a fair amount of full years of curriculum, lessons, units. When you see stuff, and you also look at commercial products, is that? Yes. So when you see stuff that's submitted to you or even see something that maybe you just have access to and hasn't been submitted to you, what are the problems that you see over and over again with curriculum that's coming out these days? Twofold, lack of a volume of reading. Mm-hmm. So if students have read two texts on the American West, one fiction and one nonfiction, that's not, and, and they're grade level, and that's good. And there's text-dependent questions, that's good. They need more texts on the American West in order to grow their vocabulary. They need a series of five or six texts, as I've been describing, on the American West. Very few of the commercial programs or the non-commercial programs, although that's changing, especially with some of the non-commercial programs, uh, and especially the ones that are online and can make these changes. So it's changing, but we're not there yet. But that's something that I see too often. Um, The other thing is that it's very difficult for a lot of writers to put the text first and the standards next. So what happens is they'll be reading a text on um, Tuck Everlasting, Mm -hmm. and it was the point where Winnie, it's one of my favorite books in the world, and I think the girl's name is Winnie, and she's just beginning to realize what's, what's going on with the Tucks and just beginning to come to grips with this question of immortality versus mortality. And the standards that are being dressed are the figurative language. What was the figurative language that the author used? Any kid who can read for shit is going to really stop and say, 
that's a really interesting idea. Would I want to live forever? Is she going to want to live forever? Um, that's a key moment in the text. And that's what should be asked. And when you don't do that, what happens is the student who has not picked up on how this moment is transformational is reading too superficially. And if the questions don't address that, you're rewarding superficial reading. The student who gets it, who realizes that this is a turning point in the text, and this is really interesting, and there's no questions about it, they're being punished for being an effective reader. Do you think that what you just described in terms of, you know, here's this pivotal moment in a, in a full-length work, or shorter work, that that is something that pre-Common Core was done more often, that we've lost sight of that? Or is that something that's always been a missed opportunity with curriculum that you've seen? Well, always, there's no always in education. Um, often? <laughs> Sometimes. Um, often would be, would be better, right? Um, I think that good teachers would not, you know, good teachers would not miss that before sure. or after the standards. But teachers who are working hard and may not be as effective as others or, or are new teachers and are using some of these materials would not pick up on that mm-hmm. and would instead ask about the figurative language that was describing the lake at the time and the ripples. Got it. Okay. All the sort of trends you're describing, the problems, have you seen some curricula, uh, be it cur- uh, commercial or open source, that bucks these trends? I haven't seen everything on the market. I think the expeditionary learning on Engage New York, which is now being enhanced by, by expeditionary learning, did very well on bucking the trend of focusing so much on the standards that they missed what was rich in the text. They did not, in their original version, have enough of a volume of reading. Mm-hmm. They do now in their enhanced modules. And I think that students who went through those modules or are going through those modules are reading rich texts, are doing close reading, are doing a lot of writing about what they read. And there's many good things in that program at this point. It missed a volume of reading. Which, is, which they're going to put in. I think the Wheatley portfolio has absolutely fabulous texts. It's, it, it's like a bibliography of what the most educated families read to their children over the years. It's just beautiful texts. I think that students who go through that program are doing some great writing about those texts. I think very similar to expeditionary learning, they're now putting in a volume of reading and they're focusing on the standards, but they're not letting it get in the way. A commercial program called Ready Gen by Pearson. I have not done a deep dive in, but it seems to have a lot of informational text. I don't know, but I couldn't say anything else about it. I, I, I haven't done a deep, a deep dive on it. I think Scholastic's Codex does a great job with rich text and with close reading as a regular part of their instruction with great text-dependent questions. I don't believe, I'm not, a, I'm not 100% certain, but I don't believe that they had a, um, a volume of reading. There's a little-known program called Bookworms, which I think has tremendous potential dealing on a regular basis with text at or above grade level, with reading out loud, with informational text, with consistent text-dependent questions. That also has potential. So I think there, there, are, there are programs out there that I've seen that are bucking these trends, if not completely at this point, but are moving in that direction. Okay. You know, it's hard to write a good curriculum. Yeah, it's an enormous amount of time in it. It's hard to write a bad curriculum. It's really hard to write a good curriculum. <laughs> um, okay, so I want. We have one last question. I want to thank you for your time and your and uh, your insights. Um, this is a question that 
this is an Amy Rudat production, so I know you'll like it. We, um, we started asking this question of people we were interviewing for um, full-time work, and we, start, we call it the magic wand question. And so the last question is asking you to sort of depart from the parameters of reality and imagine that you could wave a magic wand and convince every teacher in the country to make one change in their instructional practice. What change would you wish for? I would bring knowledge back into the curriculum and through reading, not reading science and reading um, history, social studies, not to eliminate hands-on science, not to eliminate inquiry-based social studies, but to bring the reading of informational text and, and literary text into the purpose of learning about the world. I would, better yet, I would want an integrated curriculum. Uh, when I first started teaching, my curriculum was integrated. Say, so um, what does that mean to you? Say more. Science and social studies and literacy and re reading and writing were all in pursuit of what we were studying. Hmm. Four or five hundred years ago, when I first began teaching, there was a curriculum called Man, a Course of Study, uh, which at the time was the only curriculum investigated by Congress because they didn't like the reality of it. And it, it, it basically was a, a quest, a year-long quest to understand what makes us human. And in order to understand what makes us human, you had to delve into science, you had to delve into social science, you had to delve into literature. And I worked with a curriculum like that, partly borrowed from Man of Course of Study, partly from my own reading. And all of the work we did was integrated around different parts of that study. In, in the very beginning, it was how did the earth begin? Or how did the universe begin? And then how did the earth begin? And then how did life begin? And then how did life change? And then how did the first pe groups of people that stayed together work together? How did they find food? How did they find shelter? What pieces of literary text I read about them? It, everything was integrated uh, around a year-long inquiry. That's really difficult, really difficult to do. But even if literature literacy is integrated around a topic for a limited number of weeks, like for three weeks we're studying birds, and everything, what we read, our, our let's say second or third grade, and what we read is about birds, what we write is about birds, our movement is about, our movement activities are about birds, our art, are, art is about birds, our hands-on science is about birds, as well as our reading about birds, as well as poems about birds, and short stories about birds, and trips about birds, and for three weeks, everything is integrated around birds. And the next topic might be explorers. What that does, in addition to being a really fit with how children think about the world, what, what that does is if we know from research that reading a series of texts on a topic produces four times as much vocabulary growth, well, what if the whole day is on a topic? That's going to produce even more than four times as much vocabulary growth. So if I would weigh a magic wand, that's what I would ask for. And actually, expeditionary learning in their revised modules for grades three to five is trying to do just that. Okay, so wish fulfilled? Maybe. Well, it's just a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> and All right. you got to get the foundational skills in there. Oh, that. Um, okay, I think, I think we're good.